All right. I think a very important text we have in front of us this morning, one that we do well to pay attention to and really understand. And we don't want to go to it this morning without uh, preparing our hearts very seriously and asking God for wisdom to give us understanding. So, as His church, let's bow our hearts together and entrust ourselves to the ministry of the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your amazing love for us, which we can express in spirit and in truth through our corporate worship and singing. And really, Lord, as we desire everything we do here, uh, we want our hearts to be joyful. We want to sing Your praise. And we want those praises to truly reflect a disposition and attitude of those who have brought to You through Your work, through the grace of the Gospel. And as we come to our text this morning, I pray that You would prepare our hearts, that You would help us to be attentive and mindful of the things that go forward, Lord, that You would speak through me, that it would be Your words and not mine that uh, penetrate the hearts of those who are here today. Father, we are Your sheep. We are Your people. And we have to cast ourselves at Your mercy to uh, truly understand how You are speaking to us and how You are conforming us to the image of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone, I uh, invite you to open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. We will continue our run on the home stretch as we near the end of this very important book on the Christian life. First Peter chapter 5. Our text for today is verses 8 and 9. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Let's go ahead and read verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. The title of today's sermon is Your Adversary the Devil. The church's battle with the defeated foe. So already we know this ends well for us. We battle a defeated foe. Think, if you will, with me. Imagine an enemy, an enemy that you can't see, an enemy of man who has supernatural and spiritual strength. Imagine an enemy whose intellect is vastly superior to your own with the wisdom and knowledge to entice, betray, and eventually destroy. Imagine an enemy with a millennia of this kind of experience, experience which enables him to act covertly to deceive the wise, even to anticipate the actions of the most devout. An enemy who is as confident as he is wicked and subversive, and has the uncanny ability to get you to see things his way. 
Add to this fact that he has an entire host at his disposal. A demonic army united in singular purpose. Your destruction. And not only is his army, himself included, efficient, but they are tireless. They do not need rest. They do not need timeouts. They do not need food or water or shelter, and they don't take union breaks. We have an enemy like this. An enemy that we don't actually have to imagine because he is real. And this enemy hates you. He hates you deeply. He hates you because you are in Christ. I speak to you, the church. He hates you because you align yourself with a holy and gracious God. He hates you because by your very new nature you are God's child and you stand against Him. You stand against His dominion or whatever is left of it in this world by proclaiming that only Jesus Christ is Lord of it. We know this. We embrace it. And we exult in the fact that Christ keeps us against this enemy. Keeps us secure. Many things have been made of this enemy. Many things have been said of this enemy described by Peter as our adversary, the devil. One quote has been this, that one of the greatest tricks the devil has played on man was convincing him that he doesn't exist. See, one of the great errors in this world is this wholesale denial of the teachings of biblical Christianity of a denial of a personal devil. Christianity teaches a personal devil And the error is the denial of it. At best, Satan is often characterized as a representation of evil, not personal. He is somewhat a mythical creature, better left to the imaginations of a more superstitious and bygone era. And I would argue that the devil has even played a greater trick on man and continues to play a trick on man today. It's not so much that he doesn't exist. That's not the main error. It is this. He exists, but he isn't the threat that we have taught him to be. He is not seen as a great enemy of man. He exists. That's what's being taught. He does exist, but we should sympathize with him in a sense. Let me, let me explain what I mean. In Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, which could be basically understood as a how-to manual for a wholesale Marxist takeover of a society, uh, Mr. Alinsky acknowledges Uh, the devil in a portion of his book. He says this at the very beginning, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to this very first radical. The very first radical. From all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Lucifer. So you have an acknowledgement there. And I think within that is contained a very profound acknowledgement is that unbelieving humanity now sees it fit by and large to acknowledge the existence of a devil, okay, but not see him as something that is dangerous, but to see him as an ally of sorts, uh, a standard to be followed, a model of resisting, a model of rebelling, right? A model of standing against an oppressive establishment. And what, it, what makes this so interesting to us as believers is that we would be quick to acknowledge that Christ in his conquering work and his death and resurrection and now as seated to the, at the right hand of the Father being King of kings and Lord of lords 
This is what we understand as the true establishment. Christ's reign is the establishment, bringing peace, salvation, grace, and justice for all those who believe in Him and embrace Him as Lord and Savior alone. And the enemies of the gospel would see our adversary, the devil, as the model to be followed in standing up against this system. You see, those who do not embrace Christ do see Christianity as inherently oppressive. Things that should be forgotten. Things that, the, the teachings which should be jettisoned for a new progressive era. But all that to say is that Satan has gotten a bad rap. He's misunderstood. That's what we've been led to believe. We should be sympathetic with him. See him as an example to be followed. Satan works primarily in counterfeits, so it should be no surprise to us that he would even conjure up a counterfeit understanding of himself so that we think him as more approachable, that we can sympathize with him. No matter how the devil is manifested or presented, Peter gives us very key truth to apply as the church in order to resist him. Even Paul says, regarding the devil, that we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know what he is about, and we are to stand ready. So let's get into the first part of this message today. In verse 8, remember, we do battle against a defeated foe, and here's the first way. We do battle through readiness. We do battle through readiness. So look at verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that's the first piece of his instruction this morning. He says, be of sober spirit. Now, if you remember earlier on in this book, he gives the exact same counsel to the churches. He gives it in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7. Be sober, right? Keep watch. Be vigilant. It's more than just on the physical level, to avoid drunkenness. And certainly drunkenness, we know, uh, compromises your judgment. It keeps you from being watchful. It keeps you from being vigilant. But its theological implications are much broader, much more important. Being sober in this case against our enemy, the devil, means keeping at bay anything that is going to compromise your spiritual faculties. Anything in which you can maintain awareness of the devil and his schemes. Anything which causes you to let your spiritual guard down. Anything which causes you to take your eyes off Christ. Anything which prevents you from walking in faith and living in the light of true grace. See, being sober refers to one who is balanced. One who is exercising self-control. Living in such a way where using Scripture as your guide and authority, you are able to assess any situation in light of that biblical truth. And of course, we find that this is essential, right? Not optional, but essential in identifying any satanic threat. See, if you are spiritually drunk and imbalanced, you will be unable to perceive things as they really are and as Scripture says they are. So be of a sober spirit. And then, of course, he says, be on the alert, It's another way we do battle by readiness and not being caught off guard. Be on the alert. Be aware of your spiritual surroundings and know those things which seek to do you harm. This might be difficult advice for some of us to take, but remember what we just got through talking about in this very text. Humble yourselves, verse 6 says, under the mighty hand of God and He may, that He may exalt you at the proper time. 
How do we do that? We cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares about you. He cares about the various situations that you are enduring. And He will keep you secure. And one of the ways of being on the alert is not being self-sufficient, not being proud. It's continually seeing yourselves rightly in light of your need for God and His provision for you. In light of His holy character and your utter helplessness and powerlessness apart from Him. We are to rest in that. But resting does not mean relaxing. We are called to be constantly vigilant. Constantly dependent upon a God who is good and sufficient and takes care of His people. So that is a humble mindset. Humility remains our sentinel, as it were, a guardian of our souls. Because that is the attitude that affirms our own frail humanity and speaks to our dependence upon God. So we want to understand this in the context of humility. We cannot be of sober spirit if we are not humble. We cannot resist His schemes if we are not humble. See, humility is never more important than when we encounter Satan. He says this. Let's move on here in this verse. Your adversary, the devil. Here he introduces our enemy. And it's not the point of this sermon to go very in-depth proving a personal devil. We will acknowledge that. We will assume that from the outset. We will not go into great detail about Satan's fall from grace. We want to understand simply from this text that we have an enemy who desires our destruction, who desires to injure us, who desires for us to take our eyes off of our Savior. But he has presented here our enemy in two ways, two very, I would say, fundamental descriptions, descriptors in Scripture. First, he is our adversary. You want to know one thing about Satan? He is the adversary. In fact, that's the very meaning of the word Satan from the Hebrew. Adversary. Opponent. One thing we draw from this is that he is against you. He is against God's people. He is the one who is actively and purposefully working against the people of God. Trying to undermine God's plan. God's purposes for this world. See, if you look at your Bible... Read your Scriptures carefully. Everything that is written in this precious revelation, everything that we hold near and dear from it, He seeks to destroy. He seeks to twist. He seeks to undermine. He is against it. Everything contained in this book, all of the truth, all of the grace, He hates. And He wars against it constantly with unabated ferocity. No wonder He is called a lion. That's what he does first. He opposes the Word of God. He opposes the Word of God and would have us think that it is one book among many, right? Full of superstition. Full of contradiction. And I think one very profound way he does this is convincing the church that the Bible somehow can't be our starting point. That we cannot stand on it and use it as a resource of first and fundamental importance. To say that somehow Scripture is not self-attesting. That it is not sufficient. He wars against all of the things that Scripture says about itself. In fact, the first time we even see Satan speak, what is it that he does? What does Satan say first to the woman? comes near and he says, Yea, hath God said? 
Has God really said that? It's the first assault we see. The first satanic assault in a very good creation is the questioning of God's Word. Not a, not a question so that one might understand, but a question so that one might undermine and contradict. And from then on, our adversary has always sought to distort and twist the words of God so that man either never comes to a knowledge of the truth or so that he forsakes that truth. Satan opposes Jesus Christ. It's another thing that he opposes. He opposes Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Since God cursed creation, cursed the snake in the garden, and pronounced His ultimate defeat at the hands of the seed of the woman, who would be Jesus, He has actively been trying to thwart God's plan. Constantly attacking Israel. Constantly attacking the Messianic line. Trying to, as we found out in 1 Peter 3, to even pollute the human bloodline. His attacks have been constant and varied. Even when we enter the New Testament, we see Satan using King Herod to try to actually kill Jesus by slaughtering all the male children two years and under around Bethlehem. Even when Jesus grows into a man, he goes into the wilderness, what does Satan do? He tempts Jesus in the wilderness in order to derail his mission, in order to prevent him from relying upon the Father. doesn't stop there. He actually gathers a host of other people. He gathers the Pharisees. It's a good example. The teachers of the law. Those who should be pointing people to the Messiah. And makes them those who attack Him constantly. Throughout His entire ministry. You talk about perseverance in that case. That Christ was always focused on what the Father would have Him do and His reliance upon Him never wavered. He always endured perfectly the attacks, the assaults of the adversary. So even though we understand a a personal devil, we also have to understand that those attacks from him come in a variety of ways. He sends his emissaries out to do his work and oppose everything that is of God. So even after Christ's ministry, after his ascension, what else do we see? We see an opposition toward the gospel. Satan opposes the good news. So what does he do? He sends out false teachers, false shepherds who will deceive those by preaching a false gospel. A gospel that does not look to Christ's finished work. A gospel of usually works righteousness. Usually something that we have to add. See, it's not that Satan tries to take away the work of Christ. He just tries to take away the work of Christ alone. You add something to it, grace is no longer grace. That's never let up. Not even now. There's a variety of false gospels and false teachers who preach them. Even First John attests to this. Where John says that many antichrists have gone out into the world and the saints have to be prepared for that, to encounter that, and to repel them. It's amazing that even today, even today you can hear any kind of multitude of sermons on this, especially because we are going through the things we are today. We see the mess that is the world. And there's so much teaching that gets us all tied up about this one coming Antichrist. When there are millions already out there. Who is the Antichrist? 
There's many of them. It's those who oppose Him. It's those who deny the work of Jesus. It's those who deny His incarnation. It's those who deny the Gospel. They're already out there, unconfronted concerning their ministry of death. I mean, this is something so grievous that Paul, when he opens up in the book of Galatians, he says that anyone who preaches a Gospel contrary to the one that we've been preaching should be accursed. He consigns them to destruction. And so our adversary, the devil, opposes this. He opposes the preaching of the Gospel. He he opposes the spread of the true Gospel. And I would even say he opposes the Gospel's true nature by just simply limiting it. We've talked a lot about that. Limiting its impact in this world. In addition to that, he puts obstacles in in the way to prevent its proclamation. Even Paul speaks to this in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. He says, we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. See, we see the adversary active in opposing the the work of the the ministry. Even by an apostle. He also attacks the Gospel by relegating it to secondary importance. Friends, if we are to be faithful to the Gospel proclamation, we must keep it primary. We must never make it a by-the-way. Because the Gospel speaks to every area of life. Hopefully more on that later. See, it may be present within the church, but if its presence is not of any real importance, we would say that the adversary has opposed us successfully. If he opposes God, if he opposes the Lord Jesus, then we should say surely he opposes God's people. He opposes the church. He opposes the light so that we do the deeds of darkness. He opposes righteousness so that we sin. He opposes the church in such a way even so that we see the creation of an apostate one. Whole false bodies of professing believers who are not truly in the faith who are not really born again. And we have to be aware of this because this is where I believe his efforts are most concentrated these days, is attacking the church. He tempts us to sin. He sows discord. Gives the church, gives Christians plenty of distractions so that we're always too busy to serve one another. Always too busy to gather together distracts us so that we invest in things that really have no redemptive purpose or value. Let me tell you something. The devil doesn't care if we fail so long as we are busy succeeding at things that don't matter. He opposes all that is good. He opposes all that God is for and that the church is for. Easy to identify today. He opposes marriage. He opposes anything that represents God's sacrificial love for His people. And there is no greater expression than that. Devoted, sacrificial love. Enjoying the full commitment of marital bliss between a man and a woman. He opposes God's design even for human sexuality. So that a man can identify himself as a woman, and a woman can identify herself as a man, and everything in between. Our adversary, the devil, even opposes the sanctity of life so that infanticide continues unabated. Guys, it's everywhere. Everything good in this world... Everything God created for good, Satan opposes. This is why it's so important that we have a holistic view of the Gospel. This is why it's so important that we take the Gospel everywhere. Because it is constantly being 
opposed. And that's just part of it. If God is for it, the devil is against it. He is our adversary. He is not only our adversary, but here's the second one. We're just getting started. He is also the devil. Not only does he oppose us, but he slanders us. That is what the word devil means. It's as if he is throwing something at us. He is hurling accusations at us. You know, if you consider this in its immediate context, this is something that you could put side by side in verse 7. The saints are to cast all our anxieties on him as if we are throwing a blanket around. Everything, every care we have, every concern, we cast on Christ. How important is that? Because simultaneously, the devil himself is hurling accusations against us as our enemy. He is the great slanderer. He misrepresents those who claim Christ. He misrepresents God. You know, all the things that he opposes, he does so typically by misrepresenting. Not simply by doing the opposite, but by twisting and perverting them. Taking all that is good and making it an idol. It's one example. But he is the one who slanders us. He is the one who accuses us. Revelation chapter 12 characterizes our enemy, the devil, as the one who accuses the people of God day and night. It is amazing. We should be thankful that we have such a grace that these accusations fall flat on, our, uh, flat on their faith, face if we are truly in Christ. But accuse us, he does. He is the great slanderer. He is our great enemy. And everything he does, he misrepresents. Everything he does, he twists. See, we draw our attention once again to the truth that the devil is a defeated enemy. And the only thing a loser can do is to run his mouth as if his words have significance and authority. And yet, we do take the bait. But here's the other thing we must be vigilant for. He says this, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So he's active. He prowls around like a roaring lion. So the lion is a very fitting image for the devil. We have examples of this, that in the Old Testament, the enemies of Israel are often described as a lion, whether individually or collectively. So it is a lion opposes the people of God. In Jeremiah 50, verse 17, we read this, Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria, and the last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So even though this is definitely in the context of Israel's apostasy away from Yahweh, we do see that he brought enemies against them to defeat them. And they are characterized as lions. In Psalm 22, 11-14, we read this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Look, listen to this scene. Sounds dreadful. There is a desperation here in the heart of the psalmist calling out to God for help. And some of this text is even ascribed to Jesus Christ later on as he is hanging on the cross. So the devil is a lion. A lion, our enemy, who seeks someone, anyone, 
to devour. And Satan is described as many things in the Scriptures. This great deceiver. He is a serpent, right? The serpent of old. He is the great fiery red dragon. And very frightening images to put in our minds the, uh, the potential threat that he is, that he is our enemy. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14-15, we read this, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So here we have this picture of Satan and all of his counterfeit efforts to deceive, sending forth false teachers who proclaim themselves to be servants of righteousness, but will no doubt fall under the judgment of God. And we have to acknowledge this too, that Satan as a lion is also a counterfeit lion. Who is the true lion but the lion of Judah who has conquered sin and death? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is no surprise that Satan would also use that to be this lion, to be this counterfeit of all that is majestic and regal and strong. But a lion he is. Lions are strong. We know that. Lions are ferocious. They are swift, smart, strategic. They even, if you've watched any kind of National Geographic presentation on lions in the Serengeti, you know that they are, but they are all that and more. When they hunt, they hunt in a very strategic manner. They try to, to isolate and then bring down their prey in very swift and cunning fashion. They are savage. They are fast. And when they pull down their prey, you will see them hold them fast with their, with their claws, using all the strength at their disposal. Normally when we think of a lion, we think of some, some beast, right, who is going to capture its prey and then instantaneously tear them into pieces. This is not how a lion kills. And this illustration, I think, is very pertinent for the well-being of the church. What they do is when they get their prey down, they fasten their maw around their prey's throat. And they don't rip out their throat. You know what they do? They pinch it tightly close so that their prey suffocates. So you don't bleed to death. They simply run out of air. And this is what often happens to the church. We fall prey to the enemy because we get choked out. We grow timid. We stop depending on God. And then simply we just stop breathing. See, the lion is really a perfect killing machine. And it describes him here as going to and fro, right? back and forth, prowling around, always on the hunt. Rather than being a resting or sleeping lion, he is a roaring one. He is ever on the move. In Job chapter 1, you have this heavenly scene where Satan somehow gains entrance into heaven and presents himself before God. And it's a really interesting exchange. When God asks Satan, hey, what have you been up to? Where have you been? What does Satan say? From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Walking around as if this is his domain, right? Doing as he will. And this question is actually repeated to him again in Job chapter 2, and he responds the exact same way. I'm just doing my thing. Roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He's always been seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to take down and destroy. He's doing the exact same thing. He's always on the move. Always on the prowl. Restless, but purposeful and dangerous. But we're not to be discouraged by this scene. Peter is not 
saying this to us so that we somehow feel threatened by the presence of the enemy. He's doing this to encourage us so that we do not fall victim to the devil's schemes. So that we know that we have a very real enemy who desires our destruction, who desires to bring reproach against the people of God, who desires to undermine our gospel mission of faithfully proclaiming Jesus Christ. And we want to be ready to know when He is near and to be on guard to be ready for His assaults on us. A roaring lion. You know what? A lion's roar can be heard from five miles away. So when that happens, we know that He is roaming around. And I think by giving this imagery of a lion, Peter also dispels any notion that the Christian should go out to seek some kind of close encounter with the devil. There's a lot of stuff going around. You can, you can, you can read it anywhere. It's easy to find where this whole idea of going and binding Satan, right? Going and, you know, kicking the devil's butt as it were. I'm going to, you know, go and fight Satan. I'm going to bind him and I'm going to tell him what he can do. And I think here's Peter's point. You don't need to go and seek an encounter with the devil. You don't need to go seek to get close to him. Guess what? He wants to get close to you. He's near. He's on the prowl. Seeking, it says, someone to devour. Even though we have the warnings, we have them all. That he is near, that he is on the hunt, and we are without excuse, and we are to remain vigilant against this imminent danger. Yet in spite of all this, the devil manages to catch people off guard. And this term devour, it says, he seeks someone to devour. It's a very vivid term. It literally means to drink down, as if you are swallowed whole. In fact, this very word is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the great fish that swallows Jonah whole. So this is a very stark reminder of what the devil is after and what his intent is. Complete destruction. So whether believer or unbeliever, that's what Satan desires. You could say at a bare minimum, he wants to harass us. He wants to damage us. He wants to sow division. And of course, this should come as no surprise to us. This is what Satan desires. He hates man. He hates the fact that man is an image bearer of God. He hates the fact that believers, even more specifically, are being conformed to the image of Christ. He despises that and wants to do whatever he can to prevent that from happening. Now, we have to understand against this against the backdrop of our security in Christ. We are secure in Him. That does not mean, though, that we are completely free from being attacked. The devil still, though a loser, still desires to assault us, still is trying to win. And so he roams about seeking someone to devour. Typically, I think in this context of Peter's readers, through the agency of persecution. So the devil uses his emissaries to prowl around to devour those who desire to be faithful to God, to inflict such persecution on them on the saints that they come to the point where they deny Christ, where they somehow compromise. So I would say in this case, to devour someone is to either destroy their faith or to destroy the testimony of the believer and the church. Even though we will simultaneously say that no true faith will ever be ultimately destroyed. But Peter's warning holds. We don't want to be naive in our security. Yes, we are secure in Christ. Once we, are, once we belong to Him, we cannot unbelong to Him. That does not make us impervious to satanic assault. We still are called to walk with God by faith 
to rest in His provision, and to be strong through the ministry of the Word, and to come together as His people, as His saints, and stand against our enemy. So in another sense, He can devour you if you fall into a pattern of unrepentant sin and open yourself continually to spiritual attack. From a functional standpoint, to be devoured is to to deny the Gospel's power. Listen to this quote from Joel Beakey. He's got a great book called Fighting Satan. You want a reformed look at the Christian's relationship to our adversary, the devil? It's a great book. But he says this, If Satan cannot keep believers out of heaven, he will do what he can to keep heaven out of believers here on earth. And isn't that the truth? As the mission of the church, we preach the gospel to try to bring the, to, to bring the kingdom of heaven to bear upon this world, to preach the lordship of Christ. That is what the devil wants to prevent us from doing. And then Beaky in this same book quotes a man named William Spurstow. He says this, If not to extinguish their light, yet to eclipse their luster. If not to cause a shipwreck, yet to raise a storm. He goes on to conclude that the devil wants to molest them in their way. So that even though Satan is a defeated foe and cannot finally thwart the redemptive purposes of God, his only recourse is to then make Christians as useless as possible through his prowling around, through devouring them. See, if he can't eat you, he's happy to eat your clothes and leave you naked and exposed. My old pastor growing up once characterized Satan in this text as a lion, yes, but a lion that has been declawed. He cannot ultimately destroy you. But if you get close and fall to his temptations, he can still slap you around a little bit, right? If a 500-pound male lion's not going to tear you apart, imagine being struck by one of his paws. It's still going to hurt. And so we must keep vigilant. So that's the first thing. We want to understand the reality of his presence. And here's the second one in verse 9. The church battles by resisting. First, the church battles by being vigilant, by being watchful. Now we battle by resisting him. And I think this is where the church has perhaps fallen woefully short in terms of our encounter with satanic forces. Remember, we are in a spiritual battle. That's why we read Ephesians 6 this morning for our Scripture reading. That our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, right? Against spiritual forces in heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle. And so the church is called to stand firm, right? The same language is used. And Peter says, but resist him. How will we describe the devil as a roaring lion, as an angel of light, as a dragon? How does the saint resist the devil? How do we do this? Well, Revelation puts it very adequately. We resist him and we overcome him by the word, right? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We rely on the word. We fall into the safe care of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We resist the devil. And I would say this, if you are not resisting him, you have been devoured. There's the mark of someone who's been devoured, friends. We are no longer resisting Satan and his devices. We are no longer standing firm against supernatural satanic powers. We're no longer answering the call to battle. See, we're called to resist him. And going back to a moment earlier in our mess, we talked about how 
our adversary opposes everything, right? And we list a variety of things in which that opposition is made crystal clear. And so how do we resist him, right? We resist him, I think, fundamentally by not truncating the gospel. We've talked about this week after week, right? And what I mean by truncating the gospel is by relegating the gospel to a message that when believed gives us confidence that we will go to heaven when we die. That's all it means. When we preach the gospel, when we preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we preach it in power and authority, we are proclaiming that Christ is Lord of all. And so to truly and faithfully resist the devil, we resist him wherever he reveals himself. When he attacks, when he opposes us, we resist him. And we do that by everywhere proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. By telling all men everywhere to repent. Whether that is here, whether that is in our homes, whether that is at Acacia Park, whether that is at Planned Parenthood, wherever we go, we take the gospel with us. But let's stop this this thinking that the gospel is just our ticket into heaven and start thinking of it as a holy, transforming message that is meant to be taken to every tongue and tribe and nation. And that it is a message of power which stands against the devil and his lies. We must resist him everywhere. And to resist him everywhere, we are to proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior everywhere. Resist him. Firm in your faith. This passage draws us back to one very key in Genesis chapter 4. I kind of missed this before, but I was thinking about it. This episode in in Genesis 4 where Cain and Abel offer their sacrifices. And if you remember, Abel's sacrifice is received. Cain's is rejected. And it says his countenance was fallen. But then it says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, he says this, Sin is crouching at the door. Right? You can imagine this lion, right? A beast ready to attack and devour you. It says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it, right? In the Hebrew, that word master is you must have dominion over it. Do not let sin have dominion over you, right? We are a new creation now. The church is a new creation and we are to not just stand by or stand around. We are to resist the devil. We are to, in a sense, master him by living consistently with the king, the king and his commands, the king and his gospel. See, this goes back to this very important truth that we've been talking often about, that as Jesus is head of the new humanity, we see that the new right has invaded the old. Even as we preach the gospel, as men come to Christ, we see the new day by day conquering and taking over the old. And as we stand firm against the devil, we are proclaiming the dominion of Christ. We are not to be under Satan's dominion, but rather proclaim that he is in fact a defeated foe under the dominion of Jesus Christ. So important we remember that. That we are on the winning side. That we are standing firm in Christ's victory. Resist the devil, he says. Fight against him. Firm in your faith. I think that's pretty simple to understand. 
in your faith. Your faith in what? Your faith in the Lord Jesus. Stay firm in that. Do not be wishy-washy concerning it. Do not second-guess the redemptive power and action of the Gospel currently going on in this world. Very important to not be wishy-washy and double-minded when you are at war. Be certain of the mission. Be certain of the prize. Be certain of your priorities and your responsibilities. Listen to what James 4 says about this. This is, this is a way we can understand what it means to resist the devil. He says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there is this action of humility, submitting to God. And then there is resist the devil, same idea. And what will happen? He will flee from you. But resist him how? Firm in your faith. Resist him with the truth. The truth of the Word of God. It's funny, we, we sang it this morning. Sometimes we think of resistance as sort of a, a passive activity. But what did we sing from the Gettys song this morning? Oh, church arise. Rage against the captor. How, how, how often do we think of resisting the devil in those terms, right? I'm going to go and rage against the captor. I'm going to rage against him by proclaiming the truth and walking in it. Not by standing idle, not by being passive, not by hoping that someone else does it. And not by insisting, I heard it again in a sermon this week, friends. There's so much evil in this world, it's getting worse, and I kid you not, here's what the preacher said. There's nothing that we can do about it. And in a sense, that's a true statement, but it's incomplete. It's tragically incomplete. But somebody is doing something about it. The church is to stand firm. Yeah, we can do nothing about it in and of ourselves, in our own strength, but we have the power of the Gospel. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Of course we can do something. And we must do something. We stand against the devil and his lies and we resist him. We rage against him. We are firm like the very rock upon which we stand. Unmoving, unyielding, unflinching. Putting our trust in God. And resting in his provision. Listen to what uh, Gerard writes. Victory over Satan lies in faith because faith unites us to Christ the victor. By faith, the devil is driven to flight as is the lion by fire. See, it's true. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we stand firm in this faith? We've already been over the first one. We proclaim Christ as Lord everywhere. That's the first one. We place our trust fully in Christ and His Word. What do we learn from Ephesians 6? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior everywhere. Place your trust fully in Christ and His Word. Here's the third one. Pursue righteousness, right? This is active. This is an active faith. We pursue righteousness and we flee from unrighteousness. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 10-12. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Pursue this. Flee from this. That is, See, see resisting the devil is, there are many principles on which we can rest on that and, and picture it. It's not some vague statement that we're meant to wonder about. Resisting the devil remains a very clear teaching to the Christian. Here's another one. Pray fervently. That is, be praying at all times. Pray without ceasing. 
Jesus tells his disciples to be watchful and to pray so that they do not lose heart. I think the same applies to us. If you are feeling restless and faint, pray. Ask the Lord to strengthen you that you may use what he has already equipped you with. In prayer, we gather strength from God who knows our every need. And following that, here's another one. Put on the armor of God, right? So many times this very important truth has been repeated from Ephesians chapter 6, right? When we vision the armor of God, right? The helmet of salvation, right? The, the Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith. The sword of the Spirit. You realize that there is no armor for your backside, right? Which tells us that we are to continue facing forward in this battle, confronting all satanic powers, all satanic assaults, and to rest in God's provision. We're on the offensive, friends. So let's continue to stand strong. Stand strong against the devil and all that he brings to bear against the people of God. We don't want to be caught in pride, self-pity, discouragement, even loneliness. The image here is that we stand firm together. We resist him corporately as the church. You want to talk about the church militant? This is it. Resisting him Firm in the faith. And so here's the third thing. Is that we, while standing against the devil and doing battle against this defeated foe, is that we remember the suffering of the church. He says this, but resist him firm in your faith, verse 9, knowing, so we've got to call this to mind, knowing that the same experiences of suffering that are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I think one thing the church must makes a mistake is by thinking at times that we stand in this alone, okay? both on an individual level and on a corporate level. Oh, we must be the only church going through this. I must be the only Christian who knows what it's like to do this. When in fact, Peter's quick to remind them, no, the, the, you have brethren throughout the world that are enduring these same things, these same experiences. So it behooves the church to stand together, to stand against our enemy, the devil. Because worldwide, the people of God are suffering. But he characterizes it as such. Suffering is being accomplished. You could, you could identify this word accomplished as inflicted, but this is something that the enemies of the church are inflicting via persecution upon the church. But however, we can view suffering itself for righteousness' sake, as an accomplishment. What a way to turn persecution on its head. It's an accomplishment by the people of God because it's done for the sake of His name, for the name of Christ, and for the glory of God. And that we are suffering together. So to remember that, that we don't suffer alone, we don't suffer in isolation, that even as the serpent strikes the heel of God's people, His head will be finally crushed. And it's amazing that suffering by Satan becomes a means to his final destruction. And he's trying to discourage us. He's trying to get us to deny the faith. He's trying to get us to waver and to compromise. But it's not the devil that is accomplishing this. It turns it on its head, persecution on its head, and becomes an accomplishment of the people of God as we continue to stand faithful 
and proclaiming the truth, knowing that this is purifying the church. It's purifying the people of God, and it serves the church by helping us draw near Him. And Peter here uses the word world. Your brethren, your brothers in Christ who are in the world, probably means the Roman Empire. But the word cosmos, right? This word that refers to any place in the world that is apostate, that is not oriented toward Christ. Any place that has not yet been put under His feet. And yet the work of the Gospel continues knowing that victory is assured. So rest in that. Remember, we all suffer together. And we will go through ebbs and flows. Yes, it will vary in intensity and frequency, but remember that we are able to stand firm because we have a faithful God who has already dealt the death blow to our great adversary. And remember this, that no battle was ever planned by heaven's most gifted strategist which can finally conquer faith. All its inflamed and terrible darts fall harmless as they strike against the shield of faith. That's how we do battle, friends. That's how we do battle against an already defeated foe who cannot yet, for some reason, admit defeat. And yet we are able to daily, by the grace of God and the power of His Gospel, to walk in victory. Be faithful, but be vigilant. And I think as the days go forward, as it becomes more and more difficult to be a believer, I think those days are coming. Let us not grow lax, let us not grow careless, but let's be vigilant and be vigilant together, knowing that in Christ, we win. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in your word. We, we thank you, Lord, that we can stand together against a defeated foe. We don't want to be unwise. We don't want to be naive um, regarding the, the, uh, the efforts against our enemy, against our adversary, the devil. The picture is vivid, that he prowls around like a roaring lion, skulking about, seeking to do us spiritual harm. And we don't want to be careless in our security, careless in our faith, but to be ever watchful. Lord, not only for his attacks, but to be watchful for one another. What a great way to practice the one another's. To stand against this beast who desires to do us in. This beast who cannot admit defeat. And yet, Lord, it is not our desire that any of us are taken captive by him. It is not our desire that any of us falls prey in here to the temptation to sin. The temptation to not rest in the sufficiency of Christ and His cross. But we do need Your help, Father. We, we need Your help to stand. And we know that even from Your Word that You are able to make us stand. And having done all, to remain standing. So we thank You for Your strength. We thank You for Your provision. We thank You for the armor of God. We thank You, Lord, that, that we know that we can emerge victorious. And Lord, help us to remember those who, even today, continue to endure suffering. We remember uh, those persecuted people, whether it be in the underground church in China, those in Afghanistan, those in Africa, and even as we see uh, mounting persecution in our own country, Lord, we, we don't have to see it as, we don't have to look at that and see uh, the proclamation of the gospel as a failing mission, but rather one that is victorious in its proclamation, one which will advance the kingdom of Christ, and even though, Lord, that the gospel is being proclaimed and there is opposition, we continue to resist our enemy and to not be taken captive by 
So may we rest in that this morning. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Uh, prepare us to, to worship. Prepare us to be refined. And prepare us to cling to Christ all the stronger. Because we know that no matter what the enemy throws at us, we are secure in you. That we can rest in the arms of a loving Father who in his Son gives us victory. And for that we are thankful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.